0: Good morning and welcome to our program. This week, we meet Ross Mayfield, an investment analyst, with an upbeat report on the stock market and the economy. Thanks, everyone. Um, So, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time today talking through um, some of the big themes that we see in the investing world and the economy um, through the guise of this gimmick that I've created for myself every year 2024 Things for 2024. So,. um, you know, you're a numbers guy, you, you become an analyst, and then you do stuff like this to keep yourself entertained. Um, so, well, we'll let this linger so, so I don't get in trouble. There's our disclosure page. Um, but I want to start with, with two kind of high level themes Th- things we're hearing from clients, things we're, we're seeing in the news and have spent the last year, year and a half dealing with. And the first one is, is the recession that was promised last year did not happen. And in many ways, in the back half of 2023, we had somewhat of an economic renaissance. Um, but these, these are all headlines from the end of 2022. And uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia does a, a survey of professional forecasters. They've done it back to the 60s. And they just ask, you know, do you think a recession is gonna happen in the next 12 months? Never had there been such consensus that a recession was imminent as the fourth quarter of 2022, not 2008, not the dot-com bubble, not COVID-19, not the stagflation 70s. Never had professional forecasters been so confident that a recession was imminent. And yet we didn't have one. And so it's not that those people um, are not smart, they're very well paid to be correct in those predictions, Um, but they weren't. And so some of the things we go through today are gonna talk about why and whether those could reverse and a recession is on the horizon or not. Um, But the other thing, You know, is something that I just remind folks, and it's it's a bit hypocritical being up here giving my opinions on the economy, but um, it is very hard to get predictions like this right, big, scary ones with consistency. So the people who make these predictions, you know, Jamie Dimon is one of the most famous bankers in the country, leads the biggest bank in the country, very well respected, very smart individual, runs circles around me in, in avenues like this, and yet was wrong about his recession call. We have recessions in the US, we'll have more. Um, they're good about every five or six years. Um, so they're going to happen, but getting these kinds of predictions w- right with regularity when more often than not, we're not in a recession and more often than not, the market is up is very hard. So um, you can take what I say today with a grain of salt, but I would also urge you when you hear these kind of, um, you know, skies falling type predictions to, to recall what happened last year. And then as we start 2024, um, something kind of, kind of in the same guise as that, which is the market is back at all-time highs. For people who follow this, will know 2023 was a tremendous year in both stocks and bonds, um, really counter to what happened in 2022. And I think there's, there's something in our psychology that when we get back to all-time highs, you feel like you're standing at the edge of a cliff. Like you've, you've climbed this mountain and you're at the peak. And the reality is the market is, has gone up, you know, to the tune of 10, 11% for the last century. Um, and when you are at all-time highs, is actually a time to lean in, not to get defensive. It's counterintuitive, but if you went back over the last 50 years, you'd have done better in the market if you only put money to work at all-time highs, standing on the edge of the proverbial cliff, but actually you're at the bottom of what would be another big rally. So today, we're sitting at all-time highs. This is not a time to get defensive, to take money out off the market. This is historically a time to lean in. Um, and I think for, for our clients, it's a message that we really hammer home because these are the times when it's good. You, you don't get all time highs in bear markets. You don't get all time highs in recessions. So this is the market confirming, you know, 2023 was a good year in the economy. The labor market is strong. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about today. But for anyone who's who's feeling like they should be getting defensive because the market finally clawed back to the all time high that was made over two years ago, um, I would maybe urge against that instinct. So now on to my, my 2024 things. Um, we're going to start with inflation because it is the thing that has driven the economy and markets over the last three years, really, um, post-pandemic. And the, the number in question is the Federal Reserve, which is our central bank's 2% inflation target. Um, we got inflation data this morning. It came in a little hotter than people expected. For anyone who follows the market or can pull up CNBC on their phone, I'd be willing to bet that the market is now having a great day. Um, the reason is because when inflation spikes, as it did um, in 2021 and 2022, the Federal Reserve jumps into action. They have two jobs. Get people uh, working as much as possible and keep inflation in check. When they fail, uh, as they did in the past couple of years at keeping inflation in check, they raise interest rates to cool the economy down. So mortgage rates, auto loan, uh, company wants to open a factory, that rate has gone up. So. It cools the economy down, and it brings inflation back into check. I just said inflation came in a little hotter than expected this morning, but by my accounts, um, the battle is won. This is core PCE, this is what the Fed looks at. It's, it's their preferred measure of inflation. It, it's called core because it strips out food and energy, which are things they don't really have much control over. Um, and it looks at basically, what do people spend on? And it's back right around 2%, right around its 30-year average, so for all intents and purposes, the battle against inflation is won. Um, it was primarily in the first place, in my opinion, driven by stimulus, which has worked its way out of the system. So we're talking about um, the checks that people got mailed, the enhanced unemployment benefits, the kind of emergency response to the pandemic, and then what the pandemic did to supply chains. For anyone, you know, I'm sure there's some small business owners in here who can recall trying to source products, source labor in 2020 and 2021. When things are in short supply, and there's strong demand for it, and there was strong demand because people had money, um, inflation pops. Well, it's not that the pandemic or that COVID-19 has gone away, but our response to COVID-19 has basically evaporated. There's no more stimulus um, and supply chains are pretty much back to normal. And so what you had is a very tidy spike and return to normal. Um, so, so that's inflation. So the Fed uh, will be cutting interest rates this year. Um, that is what the market wants to see, that is partially why the market rallied into year end. Higher interest rates squeeze the consumer, they squeeze business. These things are, are, are very kind of high level to understand, You know, simple to understand. And so when the Fed starts cutting rates and the mortgage rate goes from 8% to 6.5%, you know, maybe down to 5% in the future, it stimulates activity, the market likes that, the economy likes that. The other big reason that we didn't have a recession in 2023, or I would say maybe the primary reason, is the job market is as strong as it's been really in the history of our country. And I don't say that lightly, I'm not really one for hyperbole, Um, but we are getting people who want to work, to work in jobs that pay well, um, at as good a clip as we have in 75, 100 years. Um, Really only, uh, right before the, the dot-com bubble popped in the late 90s have we had a job market like, like we have today. And today is, is much more inclusive of minorities and women. And so we're getting people to work at as good a clip as we have. And you know the economy is as simple as you want to make it. We're a consumer services economy. A 100 years ago we were a manufacturing economy, we built things. Today we import that stuff from other places and we provide consumer services to the world. Um, technology, experiences, If the consumer is spending, our economy is doing well. And if the consumer is working and getting paid, you know, wage growth that they haven't seen in the last 40 years, um, they're spending. And so if you've been in an airport, if you've been to a movie theater, if you've been to a mall, you can feel it. But the reality is that we are in a consumer spending boom, driven by a strong labor market, driven by strong wage growth, um, that kept our economy out of a recession last year. This is, I mean, you know, I'm gonna talk about a lot of stuff today, but if you wanna boil down how the economy and the market is doing, if you've got a strong labor market, and if people are working and getting paid, and if they're confident that they won't get laid off the next day, um, you got a pretty strong economy here in the US. Um, And we have one of the strongest economies in the world. Our COVID response has been better than developed countries that we consider peers and emerging market countries that we consider, um, you know, rivals or trading partners like China. So this, to me, if I could show one slide, people are working, the unemployment rate is under 4%, and they're getting paid well to do so in the aggregate. The other kind of big section of our economy, or uh, it's not nearly as big as the consumer. The consumer is 70% of the economy. So that's why I say, if you know what the consumer's up to, you can tell me how the economy's doing. But housing is another big part of our economy. Um, It's a big part of the inflation battle too. So inflation today comes in a little hotter than expected. Maybe the Federal Reserve is gonna wait a little bit longer than people thought to ki- uh, cut interest rates. Um, inflation was in the 3% plus range today. If you took housing out of that equation, everything else in the economy but housing, it would be like one and a half percent, so about half. Um, and obviously if the Fed is targeting 2%, they would say battle one. So you kind of are at the, you know, the goal line here, the five yard line, and your last, um, your last little bit of yards to gain is the housing market. And this is a complicated story. We spent about a decade after the financial crisis in 2008 underbuilding. So you can see where um, single family housing starts were prior to the uh, great financial crisis, and then you can see what they did for the next decade. Um, we were structurally underbuilt for a decade to prepare um, for just the millennial generation aging into home buying age and, and starting families, much less to accommodate. People now being able to work from anywhere they want in the country. Um, The COVID-19 pandemic sent people you know out of the cities across the country and it it allowed people to buy homes at a higher clip than the market was prepared for and so what you've had is housing prices skyrocket Um, anybody who's been in the market the last couple of years can attest to that Um, but you have not enough new builds and you don't have enough existing inventory either because at the beginning of 2020, um, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit our shores. At that time, basically everyone with a fixed rate mortgage refinanced to three, three and a half percent. Market rates now are six and a half, seven. They were as high as eight last year. Um, people who got a three percent mortgage in 2020 are not giving up their house uh, unless it's pried from their hands. And so there's no existing inventory. There's not enough new builds. And so you have structural demand. People can work from anywhere. Millennials are in their 30s and early 40s and have kids and are finally ready to buy. Um, And there's not enough houses. And so that supply-demand mismatch pushes up housing prices. It pushes people to rent. Well, there's not enough apartments, so rents are higher. Um, And that's the final line to cross. Um, And that is why this is probably the thing I'm watching most closely this year, which is single-family housing starts. So this is kind of breaking ground, new builds. The home builders were one of the best performing sectors of the economy and the stock market last year. And it's because this thesis, right? We know we don't have enough houses. We can't force people who have existing inventory to leave. So what do we do? We have to build more houses. Home starts are starting to turn. Home builder sentiment is improving. And that is with mortgage rates, again, at six and a half, seven percent, which is a place they haven't been in 15 or 20 years. You get reprieve on mortgage rates if the Federal Reserve starts cutting rates. I think you'll see this number really take off Um, and here again is is what I was saying so inflation X shelter problem solved shelter inflation is only beginning to roll over Um, and again in the report today was a was a huge hindrance to inflation getting where we need it all right so we're hopping around Uh, 11% is a number that is the average return in a presidential election year for the S&P 500 which is right in line with what it's done for the last hundred years so you do not need to worry about the stock market in a presidential election year. Um, Historically, it's been just fine. Um, These are very emotional times, election years. Um, It seems that they've gotten more so. I'm not telling you how to feel about the candidates, the election, the potential policies down the pipe, but I can tell you that historically, it has not paid to be out of the market in election years, and it's definitely not paid to be out of the market in presidential re-election years. We have a a policy team at Baird who does a a tremendous, uh, tremendous work on this topic. And they've shown that in re election years, when the incumbent is running again, um, as President Biden is running this year, um, well, the president uh, has some tools that they can pull on to make sure that the economy does okay in an election year. You can feel about that however you want, but the stock market usually tends to like it. Um, And so there are. You know, there are reasons to, to see some stimulus on, on, on the fringes come down the pipe this, uh, this year. Even without that, even if that just got stopped up in Congress, election years have not been a time to get out of the market. And in fact, if you are adventurous or if you, uh, if you like Warren Buffett, you know, he says, um, be greedy when others are fearful. Two charts here, I'll, I'll, I'll explain them. On the left, we have the, something called the policy uncertainty index. This is a index put together by a bunch of academics um, that looks at things like newspaper headlines, that looks at divergence and forecaster predictions. So it's, it says, broadly it's attempting to say, are things uncertain? Do they feel pretty certain? What's the policy uncertainty level? Well, I don't think it's any surprise that that spikes in an election year. You have potentially new Congress, potentially new administration in the White House policy uncertainty spikes. Now the interesting thing is, what does the the stock market do from the period where policy uncertainty spikes? When there's fear, when there's uncertainty. It delivers above average returns over the next three, six, and 12 months when policy uncertainty is high. So if you are someone who likes to lean in when things are a bit dicey, this is actually the time, as I mentioned, at all-time highs, this is a time to be thinking about getting offensive, not defensive when there is policy uncertainty and uncertainty around the outlook for the economy and the market and um, what's happening in DC, that has historically been a good time to invest. Um, you know, past performance doesn't equal future results, all of the disclaimers that were in my disclaimer side, but um, something to consider. At a minimum, this is not a time to be scared of the market, but on the flip side, you know, this, this could be especially, um, things tend to get a little dicey in the summer of election years. You have big rallies um, in the fourth quarter typically, but the middle of the year tends to be a little dicey. Um, Opportunistic investors should pay attention. Other things kind of in the political geopolitical um, spectrum. This is something that I think is not discussed nearly enough. 13.2 million barrels a day. That is what we are pumping in crude oil in this country. Um, We are well on the path to being energy independent, um, which is beneficial for a lot of reasons. So primarily, I mean, it keeps gas prices in check. People hate when gas prices go up. Um, But it also keeps us from having to make geopolitical decisions with unsavory uh, partners based on energy. There's a lot of that that happens. Um, You know, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a lot of talk about Europe's energy dependence on Russia. What were they gonna do if, they, if we cut Russia off from the global energy market? Where would Europe get their energy? Well, now they're getting some of it from us, but the, the main point of this is that we are pumping oil and doing so efficiently. Um, we talk about productivity a lot, and I'm gonna talk about productivity in a minute. Um, it often, you know it, we talk about it like it's technology, right? I think about computing a lot. We've made some really incredible productivity enhancements in, in fracking and pumping. That have allowed us to become basically an energy independent country. Um, this is just, I, you know, as the world, and I'll talk about deglobalization here. As the world kind of, um, you know, phrased some of the old partnerships, the forty years of globalization um, after the Berlin Wall fell, or thirty years, um, that's kind of reversing course. It's very good to be in this position and not be dependent on unsavory partners uh, for our energy, as much as. Uh, the administration and and, the country has um, clean energy goals, the reality is that those are more of 2040, 2050 stories. And in the near term, it's very good to have something like this in our back pocket. Um, Speaking of deglobalization, along the same point, this is a structural theme that we talk about a lot at Baird. Um, There are ways to invest in this theme, but US and China, that relationship is fraying. You can see, you know, Russia deciding to invade Ukraine, strife in the Middle East, while not new, is certainly ramping up again. Um, China and Taiwan is potentially the most, you know, talked about, will they, won't they um, geopolitical conflict out there. This is our imports from China as a percent of total imports. It is falling. And in fact, I just saw a headline uh, the other day that 2023 was the first year in a couple of decades we imported more from Uh, a country not named China than we did from China and it was Mexico. So um, nearshoring and reshoring critical supply chains, that is a lesson from COVID. You know, if you're making stuff across the sea and all of a sudden you can't get it across the Pacific, it's a problem. It's a problem if that stuff is medicine, if it's PPE, if it's um, semiconductors. Um, So so COVID, but also um, as tensions rise around technology and just around these relationships in general, this is, this is like turning a cruise ship, right? This is a slow moving theme. But this sort of thing is, is one of the few bipartisan ideas in Washington right now. Um, the Trump administration was hard on China. The Biden administration has not necessarily reversed course on that. Um, the rhetoric may be a little softer, but they haven't really reversed course on that. And um, countries like Vietnam, another country in Southeast Asia that's positioning itself as a manufacturing hub, countries like Mexico where again just just took over as the number one um, trade partner with the US so again something to watch closely this is tied in um, closely with that theme as well so 59 billion is uh, what we will spend in our country over the next five years from just the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed um, two years ago so We're in a bit of a fiscal squeeze in our country. I don't anticipate a a ton more spending coming down the pipeline in the next few years. But there have been three major bills in the last couple of years that are already passed. The Inflation Reduction Act, um, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the Chips and Science Act. And I kind of cheated because this slide is actually more about chips and science. This is private construction spending on computer electrical manufacturing, right? So again, semiconductors. Taiwan uh, is the number one exporter of um, semiconductors in the world. Semiconductors are the new fossil fuels. They power everything. They're in half the things on this table. They're in your cars, they're in your phones, they're in your computers. Um, Taiwan is a major exporter. Um, If there is concern that China will try to take back Taiwan, we need to be reshoring and bringing uh, some of that manufacturing capability to the US, to Mexico, to anyone who identifies as more of an ally um, than China might at this point. I mean, I I can't explain how crazy this chart is to see. After 30 years of flat spending for it to go vertical, that is um, money from the federal government that is already in the pipeline, that is subsidizing companies to bring these manufacturing plants to the US. Um, They're building a big one in Arizona right now. Indiana, I think, just won a big contract. I, I forget the company, but. This is a big theme over the next five, 10, 15 years. Um, and importantly, as the kind of our, our country's fiscal situation comes more into focus, this is money that's already allocated. This is money that's going out the door over the next five years, and it's, it's not coming back. So this is something that, even if we enter a period of fiscal austerity, that's something to keep an eye on. And again, something that's bipartisan, something that's related to deglobalization, something that became very apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic. The reason to potentially expect fiscal austerity, um, or at least a tightening of the belt in the US, is that, um, well, anyone who follows the news know that our federal debt is is going in one direction and it's not exactly the right one. Um, The deficit is is pretty big as a percent of GDP overall, however you like to look at it. Um, We've done a lot of spending in the last five, six years, tax cuts and stimulus. and with interest rates rising, the cost of servicing that debt is going up at a very, very rapid clip. So for a decade, interest rates were zero, truly zero percent uh, um, at the Federal Reserve. Market interest rates were a little bit higher, but the Federal Reserve could basically issue debt, and it wasn't a problem. It just wasn't a problem because the interest on that debt was, it was a, a decimal point in the federal budget. That's reversing, that's starting to rise. Um, entitlement spending is, continues to grow, we'll put, it, we'll put it that way. This sort of thing will force the hand of whichever party is in power to look long and hard at what we're spending on, to um, tighten the belt, so to speak. It will look different depending on who's in power, um, but it is, it is looming, and so that is why things that have already been allocated are important, and why whatever hasn't been allocated to might get less than they would have anticipated um, two, three, four years ago. Um, If there's questions about the debt after the fact, we can go into it in further detail, Um, but the reality is that the cost of servicing the debt is rising, and that is something that will will get the attention of policymakers, even if whatever decision they have to make is politically unpopular. Uh, Last two things. I should have kept a timer up here because I'm prone to rambling. But um, concentration, anyone who follows the market closely will know um, the stock market has done well, but the stock market has done well in large part because five, six, seven massive companies in the US have done really well. So as of the end of the year last year, the five biggest companies accounted for a quarter of the S&P 500. It's called the S&P 500 because in theory, there's supposed to be 500 companies represented with that index but you have a handful of companies. I think, I mean, I'll probably butcher the stat, but I think Apple and Microsoft combined are bigger than the entire um, energy sector. So all the energy companies, bigger than the entire um, financial sector, all the banks. So you have these massive tech stocks at the top um, and concentration has been one of, the, one of the fears that I've heard the most over the last year. Well, is it only these companies working? What happens if those companies stop working? Um, and I have a few thoughts. I mean, the, my first thought is um, concentration doesn't portend weaker returns. So we looked at the periods throughout history, we've called them out, those spikes where concentration rises. And then you look at the returns over the next year or so, and they're not, they're not bad. They're not unremarkable, they're just not bad. It's not an indicator that's worth monitoring. Um, the other thing I would say is towards the end of 2023, Everything else did start to work. Now, the problem was those companies didn't stop working. And so the concentration didn't go down. Um, But things like smaller companies, small cap companies, financials, energy, pretty much everything was working into the end of 2023. Um, A lot has taken a pause in the the start of this year. um, But we expect that the market will continue to broaden out here. That number might not change, because you're gonna have a hard time getting those stocks like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, the big tech stocks to stop working. Um, But everything else is working underneath, it's just harder to see. The final point I'll make here is, uh, this is the comp that I hear a lot, the dot-com bubble, because it's big tech stocks, the concentration is high, Um, the big difference, oh, and this led to a a long sell-off and a recession in 2001. The big difference today is that the stocks at the top of the market today are like small nations. They are monopoly businesses with a ton of cash, more cash than they know how to spend, almost no debt or at least a very manageable amount of debt. And they have what uh, Warren Buffett would call big moats around their businesses. They're able to fend off um, competitors very easily or they just gobble them up uh, in the case of some of those companies. So here, there was a lot of, uh, there was a big market move without necessarily the cash or the earnings to back it up. Here, it's not the case. So I'm not gonna tell you that this isn't a high number and and catches my eye, but I feel a lot better about the companies that make up that 25% today than the companies that made up that 18% then. So it's something to monitor, but it's not something to fear, uh, in my opinion. Uh, Finally, uh, this I think is, again, one of the more under-discussed things in the economy, which is um, productivity. It's the secret sauce of economic growth, is simply what do we make with how much we put in, how much we put in in the form of time, how much we put in in the form of raw materials and resources. Um, Productivity over the last several quarters has been improving at a rate that we did not see um, pre-COVID. So the reason this matters is if we're gonna have, you know, a shortage of labor, if we're gonna struggle to find workers, we need the workers we have to be more productive. Um, if workers are gonna get paid more, well then we need to be able to make those workers more productive. Um, this has been a big topic of conversation around the kind of AI revolution is, oh, how can, how can AI you know, swoop in and make every, every worker on the planet more productive? Um, AI has not even really been you know, put out yet. At Baird, most of the AI services are blocked from our, our servers. You can't even use them if you wanted to. Um, because they're so new. So this is, this is just good old-fashioned um, productivity and efficiency enhancements. Whether you want to say higher interest rates caused some of these businesses to, to snap out of uh, kind of a, a stupor over the past decade, and they said they really started to take a look at what they were doing inefficiently. Um, but we are seeing an uptick in labor productivity that is, as a country that's aging, as a country that has mixed emotions on immigration, we're at times are facing a, you know, a labor shortage and that's not gonna really improve in the next five, 10, 20 years based on our demographics. So the big question is how can we make those people who wanna work more productive? I think AI is part of that story, but we're seeing it even without AI. This is, this is the number one reason in my opinion to, to be excited about our economy is to see um, what we can do and how much more efficient we can be when our feet are held to the fire. Um, It's good for profitability, it's good for economic growth. It allows people to work in industries that that are more valuable. Um, You know, the the story that I, or the the stat I use a lot is in the 1800s, over half of our population was in agriculture, they were farmers. Um, Today it's, it's less than 5%, I think it's closer to 1%. And there's still plenty of food. Productivity enhancements along the last 150 years allowed us to optimize the way that that entire industry works and redeploy that labor. Our our unemployment rate is 3.5%. It's not that there are less people working today. People are working. They're just working in different industries, higher value add, um, and, and we'll see new industries develop over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, I'm, I'm gonna butcher the stat, but it's one of my favorite ones. I think 60% of jobs today did not exist in 1940. That sort of development, that sort of... Um, productivity makes a sector uh, more efficient, so they need less workers. Those workers aren't out of jobs. They're reallocated. It's not to say it's not sometimes painful. It's not to say it's frictionless, but that's how economies evolve, and that's how we become the biggest and most productive, productive economy in the world today. Thank you for joining us for this week's public affairs program. Have a great week.